Today we are in Genesis, we start in Genesis chapter 47, starting there in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the book. So we've got a good chunk to look at here, um, but uh, I think we can make it in a, in a decent amount of time. All right, are you there? So today we're going to be completing, like I said, completing the study of the book of Genesis. And my prayer from the very beginning of this and it's the, the same as it is today, is that you would have grown in your understanding of who God is, who you are, and God's plan of salvation. All right? Because all those things are revealed and explained throughout the book of Genesis. Um, and understanding Genesis helps you understand the rest of the Bible and the biblical story. In fact, on the very first message of Genesis, which was in August... Um, last August, I gave you a quote from a a pastor named um, Kent Hughes. And here's what he said about it. He said, what we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, and about salvation begins in Genesis. And it provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. And hopefully that is some of what has been established for you as we've gone through it. And I told you um, all along that Genesis is the book of beginnings. But today we come to the end of the beginning. All right? So, where are we at in the story? God's chosen people are settled in Egypt where they're going to remain for ten generations. All right? There's a big gap between the first book of the Bible and the second book. Between Genesis and Exodus. And this gap is 400 years or so, all right? And, and in that gap is, is where we're going to lead up to here today. And now what we do is we come to the end of Jacob's life. Jacob, who also had the name of Israel, same guy. His son Joseph had, had paved the way for the family to be there. But there are still going to be several years of famine um, ahead for the family, all right? So in Genesis chapter 47... Starting here in verse 13, it says this. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. 
Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, we come to a spot where some pretty desperate things happening in this story. Um, This historic section is important because it's a major shift in how Egypt would operate as a nation and it would directly impact the people of Israel whose descendants would be living in this land for 400 plus years. It was a consolidation of power, of wealth, of land, and of people in a very short period of time. Now, if you've been studying with us and you've gone through this story, you'll remember that God gave Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, a dream that explained that there was going to be these seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. But no one really understood how desperate these years of famine were going to be. It literally wiped everything out, all of the crops, all of everything, except for the fact that Joseph had been given the wisdom to save up the grain that ultimately helped everyone survive, all right? And that's what's happening here. This is the the end of this, this famine time, these last few years. And the people ultimately just offered everything to the government, but were grateful to do it because they could survive. Now, for a bunch of free market capitalists, this is a terrifying idea. <laughs> really? We look at this and we're like, you did what? <laughs> like, get on a boat, jump in the Mediterranean, go find some other land, do something. But not this, not that. And it's hard for us to imagine that Joseph, this God-fearing man, would be at the center of all of this. Now, we, we can't really enforce all of our modern Western ideals on this ancient society. Um, it was a different time and a different place. But one of the things that I want you to get out of this is remember that God can move in all sorts of ways that we don't comprehend. All right? Even when we think, ah, it shouldn't be this way. It can't be this way. God still can do what God wants to do. He's unlimited. Believe it or not, he moves in every political spectrum, among every race, nation, and people group. His light can overcome any amount of darkness. His wisdom can overthrow the strongest lies. Uh, and, and I don't know exactly all that he allowed in this context, but it would serve as a backdrop for how he was going to shape his people. The entire family, tribe, many nation of the people of Israel had moved now into Egypt, remember? Into the land of Goshen. They had left Canaan, the promised land. They had come at, at, at Joseph's uh, request, his invitation. 
Pharaoh himself said, it's great, come on in. You can have this portion of the land. You can live here. You can do your own thing. You can be your people and, and you can grow and develop. And that's what they did. So here they are, they're refugees from their own land and they're in this spot that's been given to them by God. But God wants to do something with these people even over these 400 years. And this is the backdrop of it. Specifically, how I think this would have impacted the people of Israel is that it would cause them to desire freedom and a land of their own. Because even here now in Egypt, where, wow, they, they, because they're, where they're at at the end of the Nile River, their flocks have food to eat. Their families have food. They're doing okay. They're in the one little fertile section of this whole land. And for them, it looks pretty good. It seems pretty great. It's like, okay, God brought us here. We're going to be okay. And you know how we are when things get comfortable. When we're comfortable, we're like, I like this. I just want to stay right here. Right? That's who we are. If, if we've got our needs met, we're taken care of, and things feel good, we're like, hey, uh, let's just stay here. Why do I need to do anything different? Yeah, the, God made some promise about a promised land somewhere else, but I'd have to pick up and move. You know how long it took us to walk here from there? Like, now I've got an extra, you know, two camels over here and two more kids, and I've got to pack all that stuff up again and move back. Forget it. That's uncomfortable. That doesn't sound fun at all, right? That's some of what's going on there. But God had a purpose. And so be, because of this whole political situation, the people of Israel realized, well, no one here in Egypt owns this land. We're not going to be able to own it. No one's going to have their freedom. We're always going to have to serve Pharaoh forever. We don't want that. That's not good. It would be so much better if we had our own place and our own space and ability to do what we need to do. Maybe we should ultimately get back to Canaan. All right? Now, in verse 27, it says this. It says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. You read that right. Remember when he came and blessed Pharaoh last week? He was 130. All right, he's 147 years old. And it says in verse 29, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not, do not, I repeat, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, some of you may remember this strange contractual agreement. We saw this back in chapter 24 when Abraham called the servant in and said the strangest thing. Put your hand under my thigh. <laughs> You're like, huh? What is this? And, and what I explained to you is essentially this was a very personal promise. Right? To this day, we don't go around grabbing people's thighs. If you do, you should stop. <laughs> right? That's not what we do. It's not socially acceptable. It wasn't then either. The point is, it's this kind of thing where it's like, whoa, like, I'm serious about this. This is something that I really need you to, to pull off for me. And Jacob knew in his deepest being 
that the covenant promise was for the land of Canaan, not the land of Egypt. And that was so deep in him that Jacob calls Joseph in. Joseph's the son with all the power, right? And he calls Joseph and says, listen, if, if, if I've been an okay dad for these past 17 years, I know I haven't been with you for a long time and everything else, but still, if I found favor in your sight, please, 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 promise me, promise me that when I die, you'll take my remains and bury me back in Canaan with the rest of our, our family. It was very important to him. That is where he wanted his remains to rest because he knew that he would die in Egypt, but his hope was on the promised land, the land of Canaan. They didn't have the teachings of Jesus on heaven and the afterlife. This is all they knew at this point. Now, as Christians, we have the same hope. Uh, only our promised land isn't in this world. I hope you know that. Jesus taught us that there's so much more. There's so much more to look forward to. We don't long for a Christian utopia on earth. We don't. Our hope is in the heaven that Jesus promised us. Now that changes our priorities in life, right? It does. And sadly, a lot of Christians are really off track on this. They think it's going it's to happen here. It's got to happen here. We got to make this, this perfect Christian society. But Jesus said, when being questioned by Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. I'm going to prepare a place for you, he said to his followers. It's not here. Let's move on because we we've got a lot of material still. Chapter 48, verse 1, it says, And after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Notice the order there, Manasseh first, then Ephraim. That's because Manasseh is the older of the two. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So he's very sick at this point, all right? He's, he's very much he's at the very end of his life. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh, notice that he switched the names here, the order, shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. That's Joseph's older two brothers. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel, that was his wife, died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. 
Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. All right. Good job, guys. You made it. It was a long stretch. Time and time again in Genesis, we have seen God do things that are not the way we would have expected. Over and over, we've seen that. When he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, We'd never expected that they would have been given the free choice to sin and cause all the issues that that came from that. We didn't know that they would have the freedom to disobey him. Later, we didn't expect the, the, the flood in the days of Noah to come and be so destructive. The first time you hear that story, you're like, wait, what? God wiped out the people? He had created the people. What's going on here? This isn't how we expected things to go. We, we didn't expect that an angel would appear and wrestle with Jacob all night long and then put his hip out at the very end. You see these different things and you're like, what is going on? Why is God doing it this way? How is this all supposed to, to make sense? We didn't expect Joseph to ever turn out how he turned out. We didn't expect him to, to move from the prison to the palace in a single day. My point is in that, And this is a point that both Jacob and Joseph understood and knew, and we see it uh, illustrated here in this section, is that we do not control God. We don't. We do not control God. We do not have the same perspective that God has. We are made in his image, but we're not God's. God's actions will not always be understandable to us or comprehensive to our minds. But his attributes remain the same. 
Okay, that's important. His actions will not always be comprehensible, but his attributes remain the same. We may not know why God does what he does, but we can know who he is. And that's important because God is good. He is loving. He is merciful. He is just. He is righteous. He's glorious. He's holy. That's who God is. Now, some of the ways that he does things, though, we're like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't see how this all makes sense. I needed mercy. I asked him for mercy. I know he's merciful, but I don't see the mercy in my life in this way. He's, he's loving. He's a healer. He's all-powerful. But, hey, this loved one, I'm praying for them, and they're still sick. I don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, how he's, he's moving things in the world. I don't get it. I don't understand. And this mix-up uh, here with, with Joseph and Jacob, and, and Jacob here crossing his hands, blessing the younger son over the older son, this whole mix-up was something that was beyond Joseph and Jacob. It seems that it was ordained by God. And notice that Joseph didn't even argue here with his father. He said, okay, I just thought the old man had it mixed up. <laughs> but as soon as, as, as Jacob says, I'm sorry, son, this is how it's supposed to be, Joseph's like, oh, okay, I guess this is how it's supposed to be. And I've seen all kinds of things happen in my life that I didn't expect. <laughs> Think of Joseph's adventures. Think of how Joseph felt when he was sold into slavery by his own brothers Think of how he felt when he was wrongly accused of raping his boss's wife and then thrown into prison. Time and time again, Joseph was like, I, this can't be right. It can't be okay. And then God worked it out. And so here, even at this point, he's like, no, Manasseh's my oldest son. He's my firstborn. He's the one who's supposed to be, and, and it's not going to happen. I have to just trust God in this. And Jacob sensed this is what he was supposed to do. The kingdom of God is often described as an upside-down kingdom. Jesus said things like, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The one who will be greatest among you will be the servant of all. These things are backwards. This isn't how it works in our society. The greatest is the greatest, not the last. The, the leader is the leader, not the servant. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, 29 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We can't control God. We can only humbly follow him. So stay focused on who he is and his attributes, even if you don't understand his actions. All right? So now we're going to move to the section here where there are blessings, so to speak, for the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, I'll tell you right now before we even read them, not all of these blessings are what we would call blessings. Okay, Jacob was prophesying over his sons. 
And we don't know how they received all that he has to say. The scripture is silent on that. We don't know if they argued with their dad after hearing this. We don't know if there was conversation about it. But um, what we do know is that they were probably paying attention. Okay? Um, Especially when you consider some of the things that these 12 boys had been through. All the different life experiences that we talked about. All the guilty consciences that they had had for selling their little brother into slavery. All of the lies that they had told their family and their father. All of this... All these events that had happened of coming to the land of Canaan and getting the grain and then taking it back and then realizing they were going to be, they were being framed as thieves. All of these experiences, this kind of stuff that they'd just been through, this, this newfound understanding that God was the one orchestrating all these things. They probably were listening closely, but unfortunately, some of them are not going to like what they hear. Here's what it says, chapter 49, verse 1. It says, then Jacob called his sons, so he's already blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, but then he calls all 12 of his sons and, and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So he's setting this up as, this is almost ceremonial, right? He's got everybody gathered together and he says, This is serious business. Pay attention. Verse 3, it says, Reuben... You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Sounds great. We're, on, we're right on track here, right? But look here, verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Uh, we looked at this story. It was a gross one. Reuben... <laughs> had slept with one of his stepmothers, all right? It wasn't okay. And his sin forfeited his birthright. Now, I think Jacob should have dealt with this a whole long time ago, but he didn't. And, and Reuben's been wondering all along, how is this going to come back to haunt me? Well, it's coming back because here you were the oldest and you've lost your birthright. Now he goes on there in verse five, he says, Simeon and Levi, all right? That's son number two and number three. They're brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Uh, If you remember this story, to avenge their sister Dinah, Simeon and Levi tricked and then slaughtered an entire village, the village of Shechem. And they too, because of that attitude, that violent heart, they're passed over here. Jacob's like, I got to spread these guys out because they're so vicious, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now we come to the first actual blessing with Judah, verse 8. It says, Judah... Your brothers, can you imagine how Judah must have felt after he just heard the the first three blessings that came down from dad? Whew, he's sweating bullets. Well, here we go. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares, who dares rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So this blessing is a powerful one. Because if you remember the story, and I know it's a lot of names and a lot of people, and this was a long time ago, but with Judah, Judah was the brother whose sins were just as bad as his three older brothers. But it seems that he repented and changed. That's the only difference. Judah had offered himself as a sacrifice to save his brother Benjamin. And Jacob recognized this change and blessed him. And do you know, it's from this tribe, the tribe of Judah, that Jesus Christ would one day be born. Uh, in verse 10, uh, verse 10 has long been recognized as a messianic prophecy. The tribe of Judah would lead Israel until the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, would come and take his throne forever. All right, And Judah, that's how history would play out. Judah would be um, central to that. Now, uh, the next six, the middle six here, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali come together. Starting in verse 13, it says, And Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Each of these blessings won't be recognized for generations, but are very specific to each of these, of these tribes. And then we come back to Joseph in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So he's still Jacob's favorite after all these years, right? Blessings upon blessings. And then finally, the 12th brother, Benjamin. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. So each of the 12 brothers get a particular statement, blessing from their father. Um, one of the things that, as I was thinking about this a little bit, 
And, and we could go through all the historical things that you see little bits and pieces throughout scripture on this. Um, but I think that's, uh, that's a little too tedious for us. So we're not going to do that. But one thing that I would say on this, um, as I was thinking about it, is, is especially to the parents, cast vision for your kids and for the lives of your kids. I think in this case, it was supernatural and prophetic. But even if it hadn't been, I think it would have had a, a severe impact on these men, knowing how their father felt about them. We can't change the hearts of our children, but we are called to point them on the path to Jesus. We can't make them go down that path, but we can point them in that direction. We can speak into their lives. And don't just wait until you're on your deathbed to do that. Do it now. Bless them, guide them, and speak into their lives. And it says here in verse 28, it says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now, these twelve sons of Jacob would birth the twelve tribes of Israel. All right? So just so this is clear in your head, the way it works through Genesis is you have Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. And then Jacob had these 12 sons. And from these 12 sons become the 12 tribes, which is the one nation of Israel. All right? That's as far as the list goes. That's all you have to know. All right? But that's how it works. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, 12 tribes, one nation. Okay? And from this point onward, those 12 tribes, they make up that one nation. And when they arrive in the promised land, in the time of Joshua, they will settle the land by tribe in those family groups throughout the, the nation. And they would continue to associate with their tribe. Now, just to give you one, since you're getting that all organized in your head, some Bible knowledge stuff. After the death of King Solomon, which is much later, there's King David, he's to come, King Solomon, his son. After Solomon died, the nation gets split in half. And basically, it turns into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is ten tribes. Ten of them. The only two that are part of the southern kingdom are Judah and Benjamin. All right, and what happens is, um, when, when that, those tribes split in 722 B.C., this is when we can start getting more exact with uh, uh, the historical dates, but in 722, the Assyrians come in and they take over the northern kingdom. And basically exile all those people and assimilate them into their culture. And essentially, all ten of those tribes are wiped off the face of the earth. They get assimilated into the Assyrian culture and they just vanish. All right? Um, so those that are Jews today are primarily descendants of the tribe of Judah. Almost all of them. Even the word Jew comes from Judaism and that whole thing. It's from Judah um, that's, that's what's left. And the history of the tribes, though, won't be forgotten. Um, in the book of Revelation, when John describes a new Jerusalem that would one day come, the city will have 12 gates, each named for the 12 tribes, these 12 tribes that we look at. All right, verse 29, it says, Then he commanded them and said to them, this is Jacob speaking, I am to be gathered to my people, Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre. 
in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. His directions were simple and clear. Bury me where my ancestors are buried. That's where I belong. And it showed his faith in the promise. That promise that the land would be for their family forever. And we'll see that's exactly what they did. And here we are, guys. We've made it to the end of the end. Genesis chapter 50. Hang with me. Here we go. Here's what it says. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. So mummies that you see, right? The whole mummification process, that's what's going on here, all right? Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear. Remember the whole thigh thing? Yeah. My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house, all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor, threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah in the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Joseph grieved deeply at the death of Jacob. And in the Egyptian culture specifically, death and the afterlife were a very big deal. Uh, if, if you ever get an opportunity to watch a documentary on like the pyramids of Egypt or the Valley of the Kings, um, you'll hear all about this. They, were, they really were into this stuff, all right? Um, and they had these elaborate funerals and traditions surrounding death. And, but Jacob, he didn't, he didn't ask for some monument to be built. He didn't get into Egypt and say, like, wow, that Sphinx thing? That's pretty cool. Build me one of those, Joseph. <laughs> and he didn't say anything like that. No, all he wanted was to be buried in the promised land. 
And as we saw here, he repeats it over and over and over again. He's like, you know, this cave, Ephron, the Hittite, the Hittite, the field of the Hittite, you know, it's very specific. That's where I want to go. Put me with those who came before me. And this huge procession and grieving process was so influential that the people of the land, they even renamed the location to commemorate it. And then afterwards, everybody comes back to Egypt. And in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now we don't know if these brothers just made this up or not, I've got a hunch, but maybe it was a lie to protect themselves. Maybe Jacob had really said it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Joseph had already really and truly forgiven them. Now, it may have been a supernatural forgiveness, and as we talked about it before, it probably took a long time for that forgiveness to be real and Because that's how forgiveness works a lot of times, guys. If you're waiting around to feel forgiveness in your heart, you've got a long way to go most of the time, especially if it's something bad, right? It's a choice to forgive and then to work through that and allow that to sink in. And sometimes you have to live into forgiveness before you feel anything, if you feel anything. But Joseph had truly forgiven them. The debt had been canceled, And it was heartbreaking for him to to feel like, man, these brothers are still scared to me. I mean, I understand it. They did some pretty awful things to Joseph. But he had truly forgiven them. And he had seen God was in the middle of it all. And now we come to the the very last verses, verses 22 to 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, the last 70 or so years of Joseph's life seemed to be far more peaceful than the first 40. (laughs) He enjoyed the blessings of Egypt. 
and the blessings of having a large family around him for the rest of his life, even seeing his great-great-grandchildren. But he always believed that God would one day return his people to Canaan and trusted that until his dying day. He didn't know it would be a little more than 400 years for that to happen, but he remained faithful to the end. And I think as we finish Joseph's life, that's one of the, the most beautiful statements is that here's someone who finished to the end faithfully. He's somebody that we can look to and look toward and know, hey, you don't have to go haywire at the end of your life. You can finish faithfully. So how do we conclude all this? Um, I think one of the most important truths about God that we learn in Genesis is learned through Joseph's life. The statement that he made there in verse 20 about God's purposes are truly foundational to our faith. God desires to be good to us and to give us life. That's critical to know and understand. God desires to be good to us and to give us life. This is who he is. And throughout the story of Genesis, we've seen that over and over again. We're not just this failed experiment that God's trying to figure out how to erase. You know, it it only takes a chapter or two of this whole book where sin enters the world and we're already like, oh man, it's already a mess. (laughs) But that's not how he views us. He doesn't look down uh, on us um, from heaven and despise us. Instead, what we see, the God of the Bible is a God who loves us and wants to have a life-giving relationship with us. The Bible is a story of redemption and blessing, not a story of cursing and punishment. Genesis began, you might remember this, with God's blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And it concludes with the blessing of his people. Go forward. To go forward. He protected them and provided for them and will continue to do so until the end of time and then for eternity. This is why we love him. This is why we love God because he first loved us. This is why we worship him because he's worthy of worship. This is why we give him our lives because he is faithful. God is good. He was good to his people then. He's good to his people now. And we can be grateful for it. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for this study through the book of Genesis. I thank you, Lord, for the lives of these people that you recorded for us to see both the good parts of their lives and the bad parts of their lives, both their sins and their successes, both their failures and their faithfulness. And the reason I'm thankful for both of those things, God, is because we know that that's our lives too. And it allows us to relate to them and understand the things that we need to understand about you. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to give us a greater vision and a greater understanding of who you are. Lord, we may not always understand why you do what you do. We may ask you why. We may be disappointed or discouraged in what we think you're allowing to happen. But, Lord, if we can just know who you are, 
and hold on to who you are and trust that you are good and that you are loving. Lord, it will get us through anything in this life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us that broader vision, that broader understanding of who you are. Reveal yourself to us, Lord, as we go through life. Jesus told us that when we seek you, we'll find you. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to be people that that know you, that walk with you, that follow after you. Not just an idea of God, not just some religion that we carry, not just some group of people that we hang out with on Sundays, but that we would have a true relationship and understanding of who you are and a a closeness to you, an intimacy with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw us to yourself, make us those people, transform our hearts and lives. And Lord, I pray that you continue to, to cleanse us of anything that gets in the way of that. We know that sin separates us from God. And so, Lord, today we come before you again and we just ask that you would search us and see if there's any way within us that does not line up with what you call us to. Any sin that that gets in the way of our relationship to you. And even right now, as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion this morning and begin to think about those things, Lord, we pray that you'd bring to our hearts and our minds, Lord, an understanding of that. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. If, if they find sin in their heart, if they, even right now as I bring that up, if, if sin begins to pop up in their minds, Lord, I pray that they would confess that sin to you this morning. You tell us in your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of those sins because our sins are taken away by the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord, we offer even that to you, our, our, our sin, Lord, we give it to you because we can't take care of it. We can't stuff it down and hide it away and hold it. It needs to be washed clean. And that only happens when we step into the light and offer it to you. So cleanse our hearts this morning, Lord. May there be nothing between us and you. And Lord, as we continue to worship now and continue to set our hearts and minds on you, Lord. I pray that you draw us near to you and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, transforming us and making us new. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.